Hello, March of History audience. This is your host, Trevor Furness. I'm starting this episode a little bit differently today because before the actual episode starts and we begin with the history, just want to give you an update on what's been happening with the move to Spain and everything else that that entails. If you have no interest in that, go ahead and skip this part to where the music starts, and then right after that, we'll get into the history and the podcast. But I have spent the past two weeks where there were no episodes basically condensing my life down to a suitcase and moving on out to Huelva, Spain. And I'm here now with an apartment finally and four roommates, and I'm excited to be able to bring a lot of the history to life to the podcast audience. Europe and Spain have so much history, some of which is related to Caesar, some of which is, or much of which is not. But I'm excited to share that with you. I plan to get to all the battlefields Caesar fought on, or at least as many of them as I can. I've already been doing some research as to where some of the ones in Spain are, and I don't care if I have to knock on random Spanish farmers' doors. I'm going to find where the battlefield is and try to give you a lay of the land and maybe show it on the Instagram account and start a YouTube channel or something of that nature. Now, uh, another thing of note is Brendan will not be on this episode. We had started recording it and got about 30 minutes in, and it was going really well, and then his laptop actually broke. We were more worried about the episode having issues from audio quality, from us being across the Atlantic from each other because he's still in New Jersey, or from you know any number of my roommates making noise or somebody in the apartment complex making noise, and turns out none of that was any issue. It was just that his laptop broke mid-recording. So he's off to the Apple Store now, and I will be recording this one solo. He will definitely be back in future episodes, Brandon, but he's got he's got to work on the laptop. And in the meantime, I didn't want to wait three, four, who knows how many weeks for that to get fixed and for him to be back on the podcast. So I figure in the meantime, we'll keep recording solo and uh, keep the show rolling. So without further ado, here is the March of History. Welcome to the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. As I said in the intro, doing a solo podcast today, Brendan cannot attend because of his broken laptop. Now, we've received a lot of feedback from our audience saying that they love the episodes like episode 15, Defiling the Bonadilla, where there's a lot of personal drama between people kind of, uh, not to steal the, the show name, but Ancients Behaving Badly type deal. And so... We're happy to say that this episode has a lot of that and is chock full of personal drama, not because we went out and tried to find it based on that feedback, but it just happened to be that way. We have forum ruckuses, we have people fighting, we have weapons, it's it's as chaotic as any republic can be. Now, it's been two weeks off, so let me just remind you of where we left off. We left off in Caesar's consulship, he's attempting to pass this very revolutionary land bill, or, or at least in the eyes of the optimists, revolutionary, and he's having a lot of resistance. Despite the fact this bill is extremely well thought out, and even the optimists, even Cato can't find anything wrong to say about this bill, or any reason why it can't be passed. They simply don't want it to be passed because they don't want somebody like Caesar to get credit for passing a great bill like this that helps all the people, and then for him to get credit for that, they think it'll give him too much power. 
So after the whole debacle of trying to throw Cato in jail and that didn't work out and the Senate refused to take a vote on the bill, Caesar says to the Senate, quote, I have made you judges and masters of this law so that if anything did not suit you, it should not be brought before the people. But since you are not willing to pass a preliminary decree, they should decide for themselves. Essentially saying that since he put this bill before the Senate and they refused to vote on it, then clearly they don't want to have a voice in this law. So he's going to go directly to the people. And this was actually not illegal. The Senate voted on bills, and in an optimist's perfect world, the bill then went to the popular assembly or the people's assembly, and they just followed whatever the Senate told them to do. If the Senate voted no, they would vote no. If the Senate said yes, they would vote yes. And that would be the end of things because the people should believe the Senate were wiser and and knew more about what was going on in the empire than the common man did. Now, obviously, that wasn't always the reality of the situation, but that's what the optimists would like to see happen. Here you have Caesar come along and he's going to just skip the Senate altogether. Now, like I said, that's not illegal because these bills or laws do not become laws when the Senate votes on them. The Senate is almost like a rubber stamp. They become laws when the people vote on them. And there's nothing in the Roman Constitution or norms or, I mean, laws per se, that says that the Senate needs to vote on anything. So technically, you can bring laws directly before the people. Now, it's deeply frowned upon in senatorial circles because you're essentially usurping their power and authority. Now they have no say in the bill anymore. And historically, this is not the first time this had been done. It had been done by at least one other senator named Tiberius Gracchus a few generations before Caesar. And Tiberius Gracchus was murdered by a pack of optimates while trying to take a vote on a bill that he took directly to the people. He was speaking in front of them, getting ready to take the vote, and a group of optimates came by with clubs, and then they broke chairs to pieces to create more wooden clubs, and they beat Tiberius Gracchus to death, and they beat a number of his supporters to death, and had reacted quite violently to him usurping their power, despite the fact that it was not technically illegal for him to do that. So it always strikes me at the hypocrisy of this optimate party how they are the party of the roman norms and of keeping order and of not letting things get out of control and yet anytime they feel that their power is threatened they will react with violent force that has no legal basis like killing tiberius gracchus and then in the future 10 years later gaius gracchus his younger brother would pick up the the torch from tiberius and he's also murdered by the Senate, and I believe Optimate specifically, but that might have been a wider coalition on that one. The point is that people that are popularized that have tried to take on the Senate in the past have often been murdered. So Caesar is playing with fire by doing this. And Cassius Dio, one of our primary sources, even says that after this, Caesar does not communicate with the Senate at all. Instead, he does all of his communication and brings all of his bills directly before the people and does not bring any before the Senate. And true to his word, Caesar gathers the people in the forum. Probably the next day after, he said that he would no longer be taking bills before the Senate and would from now on be taking them directly in front of the people. 
And quite reasonably, he invites Bibulus. You remember Bibulus, the plotting senator, his co-consul that's always overshadowed by Caesar. Bibulus is invited. And Caesar, in front of this crowd, asks Bibulus, while they're on a stage, his view of the land bill. And this is extremely reasonable to invite his co-consul, who he knows hates this bill, and to ask him his opinion, to give him a chance to defend himself and to articulate his points and to say why the bill is bad. It's also very politically smart, though, because Caesar's well aware that Bibulus has no good reasons and is unable to justify his hatred of the bill, and he can't justify to the people why he won't support this bill they love so much. So Bibulus is left up there on stage floundering, trying to explain to the people why they can't have this bill that would so obviously help everyone in Rome. But Bibulus decides he just won't give a reason. He simply declares to the crowd that there would be no innovations in his year in office. That's it. No reason, just there won't be any innovations while he's in office. Now, in, in my opinion, this is not a rational reason. And there's no hint of the people's interest there. This is just Bibulus' interest. He doesn't want there to be any innovations, therefore there won't be any. And I have a quote by Adrian Goldsworthy on his book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus, where he gives kind of a window into or at least in his opinion, who Bibulus and Cato represent. He says, quote, Although they represented themselves as the true defenders of the Republic, it is doubtful that Cato and Bibulus spoke for more than a small minority of citizens. It's very interesting, right? That they represent themselves as the defenders of the Republic and the people representing Rome, and yet they only represent a small minority of people. He even goes on to say, and I don't have it written down here, so this is not word for word, but he says that even in the Senate, Bibulus and Cato only represent a minority of senators, but all of those minority are some of the top citizens in the Republic, so it's a very powerful minority. You can almost see it as the optimates in this powerful little group being almost like an oligarchy that rules over the Republic and does not like when people challenge their power. But Bibulus is having none of this land bill, and so Caesar continues to try to persuade him in front of the crowd. And finally, he tells the crowd that they will have this land bill if only Bibulus will agree to the land bill. And the crowd starts chanting, Bibulus, Bibulus, Bibulus. They want him to agree to this because now they have it in their heads that if Bibulus agrees, this is going to happen. And think about how much this is going to affect their lives. They're going to get land. They're going to go from destitute living on the Roman grain dole to being landowners and farmers out in the countryside, uh, away from the city slums. And so they're so excited for this, and they're chanting Bibulus's name. And this puts a lot of pressure on Bibulus. And Bibulus snaps, and he yells at the crowd, quote, You shall not have this law this year, even if you all want it. That's according to Cassius Dio. And then he storms off the stage. And this is a major gaffe to tell the electorate in any republic or democracy that you don't care what they think or what they want. Not a good idea. Plus, how is any of this behavior serving Rome's best interests? And how is this how you behave in a republic? Bibulus is saying that he does not care what the people want or what they think. If he's a defender of republican ideals, I don't see how that matches up to his behavior here. Now Caesar, he moves on from Bibulus. He's done with that guy. He brings up Pompey and Crassus onto either side of him on the stage. Remember, this whole land bill they're trying to get passed is, yes, to help the, the poor of Rome, which is what Caesar wants, 
but it's also and almost mainly to help Pompey's veterans that need land as well. And so Caesar introduces them. I mean, they don't need much of an introduction, but he brings them up and he stands them to each side of him. And he asks Pompey if he supports the bill. Pompey says, yes, I do. No shock. It's mainly his veterans that are going to be helped by this bill. You know, everybody knew that this was a a pro-Pompey bill. So no surprise that he says he's in support of it. Then Crassus gets up and Caesar asks him if he supports it. And he says, yes, he does. And this must have hit the Optimates like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky. This must have just shocked them to their very core. And I have a quote from Tom Holland's Rubicon I want to read to you about how the Optimates would have viewed this, this switching of sides by Crassus. Because if there was any one fundamental law in the Republic at this time, it was that if Pompey was on one side, Crassus was on the other. These guys are mortal enemies from their very earliest days when they were both young commanders in Sola's army, and nothing has changed. And so Tom Holland says, quote, Crassus justified his U-turn as the action of a statesman performed in the interest of the Republic, but everyone knew that he had never made a selfless move in his life. In his cold and calculating soul, not even the pleasure of hatred, it appeared, could compete with the passion for power. I love that line. That not even the love or the pleasure of hatred, it appeared, could compete with the passion of power. Meaning that the Romans loved vendettas, they loved fighting their enemies, hating their enemies, and not even that pleasure could compete with Crassus' undying love of more and more power. And this is the first time we should note that anyone in the Republic has seen Pompey and Crassus standing up together on one side and appearing publicly in association with Caesar as consul. So this is their first glimpse of the triumvirate. Now, I'm certain that they don't understand that this is a triumvirate yet. They think that this is bizarre, that the three of them are on the same side. They think that this is surprising, but they don't realize that this is an official agreement that is going to be long-lasting. Pompey goes on and gives a speech, and he reminds the crowd that the soldiers that were under his command should be rewarded for the hard work they have done and the blood that they have shed and the fellow comrades they have lost fighting long and hard for Rome in the east and in Spain, and that they deserve a reward of land, which they have long been promised for their, I don't know, 10, 20 years service. And he he goes on to remind the people that this land would be paid for by the treasure brought back by the very soldiers who would benefit from it. In other words, it was Pompey's legions fighting the East that brought back all this treasure to Rome, and that very same treasure would be used to purchase this land for them. So this is not a handout. They have earned this treasure. They gave it to Rome, and now it's Rome's chance to give back to them. And it's not going to bankrupt the treasury, and it's not going to come out of the people's taxes. And Caesar understands Pompey as a person, and he gets the crowd cheering for Pompey and begging for Pompey to help them pass the bill. And the people are chanting Pompey's name, and Pompey always loved being worshipped, loved being, loved the adoration. He needed that. And Caesar played Pompey's ego, ego like a fiddle by having them chant his name and, and beg him to help them, and, and Pompey's just eating it up every step of the way. And Pompey declares to the crowd that if someone takes up their sword against the bill, he shall raise his shield and sword too, which the people loved. But the Optimates and the rest of the Senate hated this because they thought it sounded vulgar, it sounded violent. He's going to take up his sword to defend this bill. What does that mean? Is he going to attack them if they try to stop it? So they did not like this. 
But the people see Crassus and Pompey both jointly supporting this bill, two guys who are never on the same side, and the two top dogs in Rome, and they think that this must not be an outrageous bill, an outrageous law, if two such eminent men support it. Whatever the optimists say, you know, the people know that they want this, but sometimes they may know that what they want is not realistic. But they see Crassus and Pompey supporting it, so it must not be unrealistic. It must be a good thing, so why won't the optimists let us have it? And then there's some sources that even say that Bibulus returns or may return to this event, this speech that Caesar's giving in front of the people, and attempt to interrupt it one more time along with three tribunes of the plebs. It's only Cassius Dial that says that. But either way, when all else fails and Bibulus is unable to stop them from setting a date for the vote, since Caesar has it's still early January, Caesar has to set a date in late January to vote on this bill. So Bibulus, seeing that he can't stop him from doing that, begins what they call watching the skies. And what that means is that he is looking at the skies for bad omens. And why is he staring at the skies for bad omens? He's doing this so that he can declare that the Senate can't meet on any given day that he doesn't want them to meet on, and so that they can't vote on this bill. But he takes this like another 10 steps further than that. And he, quote, or he declares, quote, a sacred period for all the remaining days of the year alike, during which the people could not even legally meet in their assembly, end quote, essentially saying that Bibulus declares holidays, which he can do as a consul, for the rest of the year on every single day that the people or the Senate were able to meet so that nobody can meet to conduct any official business for the rest of the year. In any days that he wasn't able to put holidays on, he says that he saw bad omens those days, and therefore nobody can meet on those days either. This is ridiculous. This is not how a consul is supposed to behave. This is not how the bad omen thing or the holidays were intended to be used. This is extremely obstructionist. And let's not forget, this is early January that he's saying this. They have an entire year left in which... Official business has to be conducted, whether Caesar's there or not, or whether Caesar's trying to pass bills that he likes or not. There's still other business that needs to be conducted, and Bibulus is grinding it all to a halt, or attempting to at least. Caesar just ignores him altogether and sets a date at the end of January to vote on the bill anyway. <laughs> and despite all this, this fighting, and despite Caesar boldly saying that he's going to go to the people and ignore the Senate, Cato and the Optimates may have thought that Caesar was actually bluffing about bypassing the Senate. And I have a quote here about why Cato's thinking it is a bluff and how skipping the Senate was seen. And this is from Tom Holland's Rubicon. He says, and, and Tom Holland tends to write a lot from the perspective of the people. So some of it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it gives you an idea of how emotionally they are seeing these events. And this is kind of from the view of Cato and the Optimates. Quote, All the same, he, meaning Cato, still believed Caesar was bluffing. It is true that a bill passed by the people would have the full force of law, but even so, to go against the stated wishes of the Senate was the tactic of a gangster. If Caesar persisted with it, then his credit among his colleagues would be destroyed and his career would be over. Surely no one would be so criminal as to court such a fate. End quote. But this is Caesar, and he is a gambler, and he's not afraid to do things that other people wouldn't. And as one source says, 
as determined as the optimates are to block Caesar from passing these laws, Caesar is just as determined to get them passed by any means necessary. And the vote on the bill at the end of January now approaches. And there's huge anticipation in Rome for this upcoming vote. I mean, you think about how much this is going to affect people and, and how many people are in the slums living off of meager grain doles, having no education, having no skills, having no pride because they have no, no job that they can do and no craft that they can do and they can't support themselves. And they're living in, in these trash filled streets in, in the absolute slums of Rome. And this is a chance for them to get land in the beautiful countryside and to support themselves and to grow food and to learn a skill and a trade and, and to have something to pass on to their sons and their sons' sons. So the people are extremely excited about this. The veterans are extremely excited about this. They have worked 20 years and fought and worked hard and broken their backs for the Republic. And this is the Republic paying them back. So a steady stream of Pompey's veterans begin to flood into the city ahead of the vote. Leading up to it, you know, during the month of January, just veterans of Pompey flooding into the city. Now, the optimates see this as intimidation by Caesar and Pompey, trying to bring in all these tough veteran soldiers to influence the electorate, to intimidate them into voting what the triumvirate sees as the right way. And that could be the case, and probably is some of the case, but also these veterans want to vote. They have the biggest stake of this bill passing or not passing, so it's only right that they should be able to go into Rome to vote. And some of these Burley supporters, these veterans, even had hidden weapons with them. And while this may seem bad on Caesar's part, that there's these veterans bringing weapons into the city when the city forbids weapons, there's... Like I said earlier, there's history to be that you should know here. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but in the past, when Popularis had tried to go around the Senate and direct the people, the Optimates had reacted violently. As I said, they beat Tiberius Gracchus to death. They cut Gaius Gracchus's head off. So these tactics by Caesar to bring in all these veterans, to bring them in with weapons, yes, it may be some intimidation of the electorate, but it may equally just as likely be protection for him and for Pompey and for the rest of them. Because in the past, when people hadn't protected themselves and had relied on the Senate and the Optimates to behave in a rational manner, they had been killed in the streets. And Caesar probably studied history and said, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm going to make sure we're protected, even if people say that we're intimidating the voters. Now, during this time, this lead-up to the vote, the Optimates could not call a Senate meeting because Bibulus, who's one of the Optimates, one of the Arch-Optimates, and Cato's son-in-law, did not hold the Fasces, meaning he was not in control. Caesar holds the Fasces in January, Bibulus gets them in February, and then they alternate. And having the Fasces just means that you are in control, you set the Senate meetings, you set the agenda. And that's one of the reasons why Caesar has to get this bill passed immediately, because if it gets pushed to February... When Bibulus is in charge, there's no shot it's getting passed. But Bibulus can't call a meeting of the Senate, so he has all the optimates meet him in his house. And they discuss the situation, and they determine that they need to make a stand against Caesar and against Pompey and against Crassus and try to stop this bill. And one of our primary sources, Appian, states that the optimates come to a decision that, quote, Bibulus should nonetheless put up some resistance to the laws and allow himself to be thought a loser 
rather than a quitter, end quote, which <laughs> that cracks me up so much. An ancient source from almost 2000 years ago is describing that the Ultimates said that the Bibulus should at least try to stop the bill so that at least he can look like a loser and not a quitter. And in my mind, that should, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that I could even make a t-shirt out of that for the podcast, a picture of Bibulus with a little word bubble saying, I'm a loser, not a quitter. <laughs> but I mean, even they had no faith that Bibulus is going to be able to stop this bill from being passed. Because even in that characterization, his two options are, oh, I quit, I'm not going to try to stop the bill, or I'm going to try to stop the bill and lose. There's no winning option there. But it's just funny that you always hear Bibulus described as this plodding senator with little talent, and even the ancient sources describe him as, you know, his options are being a loser or being a quitter. <laughs> Finally, the night before the day of the vote comes, and the people of Rome begin to flood into the actual forum itself and occupy spots during the night before the meeting. This is like a big concert or release of an Xbox or a PS3 or, or something of that. People are lining up the night before to get in there and get a good spot and get there early because this is a historic event for them and this means a lot to them. And Caesar holds the meeting from the temple of Castor and Pollux. You'll remember this is the same temple that Caesar and that man Nepos had that meeting that broke out into a big scuffle with fighting all around the forum. It's where they would hold meetings to larger crowds expected than, than the other areas of the forum could handle. And it was kind of like the Lincoln Memorial where there's a set of steps and then a platform, then another set of steps. And at that first platform is where Caesar would speak from and the crowd would be all below him. And also, just kind of fittingly enough, the Temple of Castor and Pollux was what Bibulus had said back when he was uh, an aedile with Caesar. See, in Rome, they just refer to it as the Temple of Castor because it's, it's a long-winded thing to say the Temple of Castor and Pollux all the time. So they would just shorten it to the Temple of Castor. And Castor and Pollux were twins. And so Pollux always gets left out. And so Bibulus said during his aedile ship with Caesar that he felt that he played Pollux to Caesar's Castor because nobody ever remembered Bibulus. They'd always say, oh yeah, the aedile ship of, of Julius Caesar, and they'd forget Bibulus's name. <laughs> so it's fitting that Caesar's giving this speech from this temple that Bibulus had used to compare the two of them. And Caesar's mid-speech, speaking to the people about the bill, getting them hyped up about it, explaining more details about it to them, when all of a sudden Bibulus and his followers push their way through the crowd and interrupt his speech. And this kind of reminds me of the Remember the Titans moment, if, you, if you've seen that movie, where uh, Will Patton interrupts Denzel Washington's speech to his team and comes in there rudely and, and, and interrupts it. And I feel like that's exactly what Bibulus did. He probably waited for the speech to start, and then him and his followers pushed through the crowd and got up there on the stage and interrupted Caesar's speech. And Bibulus is there with three tribunes accompanying him which probably means that he's there to veto the vote altogether. So you can imagine people are on edge about this already. They've, they've waited all night for this vote to happen, and Bibulus shows up with tribunes. What is he doing? Is he going to veto this bill? And there, Bibulus gets up, and he speaks to the crowd, and he, and he rails against the bill, and either tries to veto the bill or claims that he's seen bad omens, and therefore they can't meet at all. Either one of which is obnoxious to all the people there. 
And the crowd grows enraged at this. They've been waiting forever for this. They've been waiting all night to hear this bill. They're excited. They want the land. And Bibulus is trying to stop this. So they grow enraged. And they grab Bibulus off the stage forcibly. They pull him off the temple steps. They beat up his 12 lictors or his 12 bodyguards. And they take his fasces that the bodyguards hold, the bundle of rods that represent the consul's power. And they smash them to pieces. And they smash Bibulus's insignia. And in one final devastating insult, they dump a bucket of poop over Bibulus's head in front of the entire Roman crowd. Gotta love Roman politics. It's more theatrical than any, any politics I've read about in history. And Bibulus sitting there with, with poop dripping down his head, and you gotta imagine into his toga and into all sorts of areas, looks at Caesar or looks at the populace. There's some sources that say it was Caesar's men that dumped poop on his head. Others say it was just people in the crowd. But you do, you do got to wonder where the bucket came from, right? It was just happened to be there. I mean, I guess if you have a big crowd in ancient times, there's no porta potties. They got to go somewhere. Either way, somebody dumped it on his head. And Bibulus then looks at these people who dumped it on his head and, and Caesar's standing there kind of in the background, probably over their heads on the stage. And Bibulus bares his throat to Caesar and his supporters to cut, saying, quote, If I cannot persuade Caesar to do what is right, by dying like this, I will lay the guilt and pollution at his door. End quote. Kind of a, a move by Bibulus to try to recover his lost dignity in the moment. But Caesar has no interest in cutting this man's throat in the crowd. And reluctantly, Bibulus is pulled to safety by his friends and Caesar goes on continuing with his speech like nothing happened. And it should be noted, because this is very important, that among Bibulus's followers that were attacked were some of the tribunes of the plebs. And this is important for later events, for one, because tribunes were inviolable in Rome. They could not be touched. They were sacrosanct. You weren't allowed to grab one, punch one, anything like that. And tribunes were attacked here. And later in Caesar's career, he will use a disrespect of the tribunes as a defense for some of his actions. And here you can see that the crowd that Caesar had gathered clearly was not respecting the tribunes here. Now, whether Caesar gave that order or not is a different story. You know, controlling a crowd is tough to do, but just keep that in mind. But this is the optics we're talking about, so they're not done. And next up, it's Cato's turn to jump in the fray. And Cato pushes his way through the crowd like a young man, we're told, <laughs> and begins addressing them and giving them a speech. And the crowd, well, Appian says it's Caesar's men, other sources say it's the crowd, didn't seem to like Cato's speech, though, because soon they physically pick Cato up and carry him out of the forum, like forcibly pick him up and carry him right out of the forum so that he can't keep speaking. But these guys who cared about the forum seem to have forgotten that Cato was an immovable object, and it's not so easy to move an immovable object. And he soon gives his carriers, the guys carrying him, the slip, and he hurries back to the speaker's platform via a different route so that they won't spot him, and he sneaks back into the meeting. There he tried to give a second speech, but no one in the crowd will pay any attention to him. They're just completely ignoring him. And when Cato realizes that nobody's going to listen to him, he gives up on giving a speech and begins to just rudely heckle Caesar. I mean, even the ancient sources say that he rudely heckled Caesar, just trying to cause as much chaos and, and block the proceedings as much as possible. This is obnoxious behavior by, by any standards. And the crowd does not like this. And so again, they pick Cato up and carry him out of the forum, and this time forcibly throw him out of the forum. 
And finally, after the second ejection of Cato, the law was finally passed. And Caesar includes a rather clever clause in this law. He requires the people to take an oath to regard the law as permanently binding, meaning that nobody can then go to try to repeal it after it's passed. And the people happily take this oath. But in this same clause, he also requires the Senate, all the senators take the same oath. And of course, most of them do, but Cato and some of the optimates resist this so that Caesar proposes finally that the death penalty be implemented for any that refuse to take the oath, and the People's Assembly agrees and confirms this. Now, it should be noted that the death penalty sounds extreme, and, and it was, because in practice the Romans never really, hardly ever executed people. The death penalty would really mean that you had the chance to go into exile and leave Italy and leave Rome, and everybody was forbidden from giving you fire or water, but if you did stick around and refuse to abide by the exile, then yes, you could be killed. But in practice, that never really happened. So it was more of a threat of exile. But Cato continues to refuse to take this oath, despite the pleas and tears of his wife and children, because they are afraid that he's going to die for this. And Cato's friends are appealing to him to take the oath as well. Cato still refuses. Finally, it's Cicero who manages to convince him, stating, quote, it was perhaps not even right in itself to oppose what the public had decreed. Bravo, Cicero, bravo. Because I agree with this point there. The people are so in favor of this bill. You live in a republic. It's probably not even right for you to be opposing this to begin with. So just take the oath. He also stated to Cato that Cato would do no good for Rome by dying or going to exile. And that while Cato may not need Rome, Rome needs Cato. And this finally does the trick. And Cato swallows his pride and takes the oath. And he's really the second to last guy to take it. There's one other guy who was refusing with him. But once Cato gave in, this guy gave in as well. And the next day, when the Senate meets, Bibulus attempts to get them to annul the land bill and files a complaint against Caesar for his rough treatment, the fact that he had a bucket of poop dumped over his head. Oh, and going back to the t-shirt idea, my idea for the t-shirt that if I can get a, or hopefully... I'll have a website up soon, and one of the things that we could sell would be t-shirts or other memorabilia for the podcast, but the idea for the Bibulus one would be a goofy-looking guy named Bibulus with a bucket of poop dumped over his head and the, uh, <laughs> the like a, a word bubble coming out of his mouth. I'm a loser, not a quitter. <laughs> I think anyone that appreciates ancient history and, and likes Roman history would appreciate a shirt like that. Even if when you walk around, nobody has any idea what it means. But hey, it'll be a conversation starter. But despite Bibulus' pleas for them to censure Caesar, Caesar and to condemn his actions, the Senate refuses. Because they see how enthusiastic the people are about this land bill and about Caesar in general. And they want no part in going against the public will like this. They are senators of Rome. And Bibulus is so frustrated by the fact that the Senate refuses to help him with this that he retires to his house and does not emerge again until the last day of the year. This man is an elected consul in his 40s and just gets a bucket of poop dumped over his head and hides in his house the rest of the year. This is ridiculous behavior. This is why I said even Cicero thought that the way he was behaving was absurd. And instead of doing his duties as elected consul, he sits in his house and he observes the stars, again watching for those bad omens, 
and he sends regular messengers throughout the year to Caesar whenever Caesar tries to do anything, stating that the omens are bad and that no official business can be conducted. But keep in mind, Caesar is the Pontifex Maximus, the head priest of Rome, and Pompey, who's also in support of the bill, is an augur, and the augurs are in charge of omens in Rome. So how is Bibulus telling the Pontifex Maximus, the head priest, and this augur that, oh, there's bad omens, you can't have this meeting? These guys are much higher religiously than Bibulus is, so it's kind of a farce. And Bibulus even tries to block elections of new magistrates throughout the year, and even succeeds in delaying the elections by months. The other thing that he kept busy with during the year is just writing defamatory and vulgar edicts about Caesar and Pompey. He's back to calling Caesar the Queen of Bithynia and making fun of him for that kind of stuff. So Bibulus has just gone full-blown petty mode. He's hiding in his house. He's writing nasty stories about Caesar and having them posted in the forum. The people think it's hilarious because just seeing a consul behave like this is just funny to them. And they all had a robust sense of humor, the Romans, so... Even if they supported Caesar, they thought the jokes were very funny. <laughs> and it even goes so far that a tribune attempts to toss Bibulus in prison for all this behavior. But fortunately for Bibulus, other tribunes stop him from doing this. And then this tribune also leads a mob to Bibulus's house. And the mob starts chanting outside his house, demanding that Bibulus come out of his house and give his omens in public rather than posting or rather than sending messengers. And this whole episode just kind of reminds me of, of the South Park episode with Tom Cruise hiding in the closet. And the police come, like, Tom Cruise, come out of the closet. And Tom Cruise is saying, I refuse to come out of the closet. Like, that, this is what that reminds me of. They're telling Bibulus, come out of your house. Bibulus is saying, I don't want to come out of my house. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it's, the whole thing is like a farce. And if you don't watch South Park, I apologize for the reference. It just reminded me too much of that to not reference it. And Cassius Dio, again, a primary source, even says that the Optimate Tribunes even stop fulfilling all their duties during this year. Again, I don't see how that helps the Republic. But this is all in protest of what they see as Caesar's actions that have offended them. And since Bibulus refuses to come out of his house the whole year... Caesar essentially has free reign as consul for the rest of the year. When Bibulus was supposed to hold his fasces and be in charge, he refused to come out of his house, so Caesar held them instead. In other words, Caesar is always in charge and essentially rules Rome as sole consul for the entire year. And Bibulus hiding in his house like this and Caesar being in charge like this is what gave birth to the title of this episode and the previous episode, which is the consulship of Julius and Caesar, because the Romans referred to their years not by numbers, but by the names of the consuls. For example, you would have, somebody would say, oh, back in the year of Caesar and Bibulus, and that's how they would reference the year. Well, since Bibulus never left his house and never appeared in public and did nothing all year, it became a running joke in Rome to refer to the year as the consulship of Julius and Caesar, rather than Caesar and Bibulus, because Bibulus wasn't there. And people would even sign official documents with this, the consulship of Julius and Caesar instead of Bibulus. And the Romans thought this was the most hilarious joke. They had rhymes about it, how Bibulus was never in Rome because during his consulship he stayed home, something along those lines. <laughs> but it just became a running joke, and it became known as the consulship of Julius and Caesar. But in all of this is a very clever trap set by the Optimates. 
and all this hiding in the house and, and the declaring of bad omens and all this awful behavior is actually a very clever trap because by refusing to participate in any actions that Caesar does and by declaring every day a holiday and by refusing to take part in government whatsoever, Bibulus makes all of Caesar's laws of questionable legality. In other words, if the co-consul declared in every single day that you held your meetings to vote on these laws that they were bad omens and you couldn't technically meet on those days, then are any of the laws that you passed during your consulship even legal? Are any of the meetings that you had even legal? Is everything you did illegal and should we just count your consulship as a wash and, and undo it all? And the Optimates knew that they couldn't stop Caesar during his year as consul from doing all these things. But they did plan that the second Caesar was out of his consulship, they would jump on him and, and prosecute him. Because as long as he's consul, he has immunity from prosecution. But once he's a private citizen and he steps down, they can attack him. So they plan an attack in the future, uh, kind of a trap for him, where they're going to take him to task for all these things that they do that they feel are illegal. I'm sorry, all the things that Caesar's doing that they feel are illegal. Further, by Bibulus retiring and not participating in life at all, he makes Caesar look like a tyrant. Caesar's the sole ruler of Rome at this time, and he has no co-consul. Now, that's because Bibulus refuses to participate, but if you just casually look at it, things, it looks like, wow, Caesar's just ruling Rome by himself and has no co-consul. This guy really is a tyrant. What the optimists say is right about him. So actually pretty clever in that way. Now, Caesar's consulship is jam-packed full of events and, and bills that he passes, so we're going to go through a lot of those in next episode, and the, kind of the timeline on when these things are passed is very confused in the ancient sources. They kind of just say all the different things that he did, and they don't give any kind of order for how they happened. So we're going to finish up his consulship, I hope, next episode. If not, maybe we'll do a fourth episode on the consulship. I hope it's not dragging out too much for people, but I think that this this whole year is interesting with with buckets of poop getting dumped on people's heads. And in the next episode, we're going to have assassination plots and conspiracies. We're going to have tons of revolutionary bills passed in Rome. We're going to have marriages. We're going to have record pearls bought for uh, love affairs in, in Rome. And Caesar is going to aim to get out of the fields and pasture lands of Italy. So it's going to be a jam-packed episode for the next episode or maybe the one after that as well about Caesar's consulship. So that's the end of the episode today. I appreciate, as always, you guys listening and, and supporting the podcast. And if you could, please like the podcast. Please give it five stars. Please subscribe. Please share it with people that you know that enjoy history and you think that they would enjoy a, a podcast in ancient Rome like this. Follow us on Instagram at the March of History. That's at the March of History. And Twitter at March underscore history. I have not done as much with the Twitter as I would like, but eventually I will get to it. And if you have any feedback for us, we would love any positive feedback or constructive criticism. You can send it to my email, the March of History at gmail.com. And that's about it. So we'll see you next time on the March of History.